Well, hey, Providence family, I hope that you are well. I hope that you're safe and warm uh, there in, in your homes. Uh, if you are in your home by yourself, or if you're with your family, uh, I pray this time will be really encouraging to you. Uh, in a moment, we're going to open up God's word. But before we do, this is a significant weekend, not only for us as a church, for our entire nation, uh, indeed, even beyond our nation, the whole world. When you think about the importance of this weekend in our own country, when we think about life, the importance of life, and how God created life, how he sanctified life, it's been now 49 years since our um, Supreme Court uh, voted uh, to make legal the practice of abortion. And over those 49 years, we know that there has been countless babies in the womb who have been taken. And we know that there has been countless moms and dads not only have been shaken in that moment, but who now feel the sense of shame or guilt because of the pain that's all associated with that. On the same weekend, the third weekend of January, we also take time to celebrate the importance of life and the fact that God created us differently. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend is this weekend. And so when you actually combine these two, one, Sanctity of Life weekend, and the other, when we think about the importance of how God created people, how he created people to look differently, and how we think about a man whose life and legacy was extended to the place of tremendous discomfort in order to consider and to affirm that God created all people in his image. Over the last 39 years, even while having this holiday, we all know that there has been millions of decisions that have been motivated by racist hatred and fear and difference. When you think about each of these two realities, that over the last three or four or five decades, you think about the number of lives that are injured. You think about the number of souls that are injured, those relationships and, and how they have ripple effects from one generation down to the next generation. It's fitting for us, the people of God, when we consider these things, not only to remember the sacrifices of people who pursue justice, but also to feel the pain in our heart for all of those who've experienced that injustice, not only inside the womb, but outside of the womb. You see, it's important for us to feel a sense of pain. It's devastating. And the reason is because all people, they all matter to God. God created each one of us in a womb. There, God in the womb stamped his very image upon our own soul upon our own life. And he determined, predetermined for his pleasure and his glory to wrap each and every human being with a specific color of skin. It was Jesus Christ himself, the son of God who came and entered one of those wombs who, who took on a very particular pigmentation of skin. And there he came to the earth. He was born and he grew up and he lived and, and he died after living without sins. Then he rose from the dead in order to bring about a new kingdom, a kingdom that we are told will be marked with equity and peace, and righteousness and justice. You see, the good news is that one day, because his kingdom is coming, it's not only here, but in full effect, it's coming is that these devastations 
not only inside the womb, but outside of the womb, they'll all be over. But as we wait for that day, it is fitting. It is fitting for us and it's fitting for me to encourage us as a church family not to tire in feeling the weight of pain for people who are terrified as mothers and fathers, not knowing what to do with their baby. It's right for us not to tire to pray for babies in the womb. It's right for us to not tire when we talk about racial fairness, righteousness, equity, and justice. And it's also fitting for us not tire in praying about these things. So let's do that now. Father, I ask that you would be gracious to us as a people. God, we know that we are created in your image and therefore every injustice that we permit or allow or tolerate in our own presence. It's exercised against a human being is ultimately a devaluation of that human being. And we know that because we are created in your image, that every devaluation of a human being is also caused because we don't value you the way that we should. God, we know that when we mistreat people, Lord, that we don't see your righteousness, your goodness, your, your perfection, your mercy, your kindness, your glory in creating people in your image, your glory in creating people to look differently for your pleasure. We ask that you would forgive us for how we have contributed to the chaos in our own land. And would ask that you would help us not to be indifferent or to grow indifferent towards these things. We thank you that you created life in the womb. We thank you that you created mothers and fathers. We thank you that you created people with black skin and brown skin and white skin. We know that you have done this for your glory. And so we affirm it. We ask that you would help us to pray just as you have asked that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, I pray that as we consider these things in light of what we read in the Bible, now as we open up your Bible to learn more about why it's such a special book, I ask God that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would speak through weakness, and that you would encourage us on a day when we are spending it at home. We ask God that you would meet us right where we're at. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Providence, what's so special about the Bible? I am uh, very aware that there are people in our own culture, in our own city, who find it exceptionally strange that we as a people call Providence and so many other believers that we take the Bible so seriously. I know that we read the Bible. And many of you, you own a Bible and you believe the Bible, you trust the Bible and you even seek as a church family to obey what the Bible says, even when it contradicts what we are currently or previously thinking or how we were behaving. And yet it's also true, I believe, that many of us, even at Providence, we would struggle to identify, to come up with an explanation of why we trust the Bible as we do, why we give it such special attention. 
And therefore, this month, we're simply highlighting five characteristics of the Bible itself, that it is credible. And we've looked at its message. We looked at the fact here this morning that it's inspired by God. And next week and then the following week, we're going to look at its authority and how it is sufficient for life as God's revelation of himself to us. If you want further notes, in fact, if you even want the notes of what I'm doing right now, you can go to pray.org slash Bible, and they're all there for you. But I want to ask you there in your homes, if you would look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, and in a moment, we're going to start reading in verse 16, as we consider the inspiration of the Bible. Why is it so special? It's because it's inspired by God. Just hours before Jesus was hanging on his cross, he looked Pilate in the eye and he said these words, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, now just imagine this, Pilate who is looking truth in flesh. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's looking at the embodiment of truth. And he says, but what is truth? Everyone who has ever lived as a human being has asked Pilate's question because each one of us are guided by our own understanding of what we believe is true. Our perception of what is true, it forms our understanding of the world, our understanding of where we came from, our understanding of our purpose, our understanding of our pain, our understanding of our destiny, what's going to happen to us when we die. Our perception of the truth informs what we eat, what medicines we take, who we vote for, who we trust, who we marry, and if we stay married. Our perception of what is true, it literally controls and influences and motivates every decision and every conviction and every action of our life. Today, a majority of Americans just like Pilate, who have Bibles scattered all over our country. We look truth directly in the face, and as a country, by and large, we say, but what is truth? There's a study recently done by Barna, his institute, and it says that a majority of Americans today now actually believe that inner peace Scientific credibility, tradition, and public consensus make up superior basis of truth than God himself. In the same study that they did, they found that nearly 60%, this was just two years ago, that 60% of all Americans reject the idea or the notion of absolute moral truth, believing that moral boundaries are determined by individual prerogative. And perhaps even more stunning than that was in the very same study, 50% of believing Christians in America were in agreement in rejecting the notion that there is absolute moral truth. This is the very reason that we as a people, as Christians in America, lack such 
credibility and distinction when we come to the table of public discourse. You see, the Bible is full of absolute truth claims. What that means is that what it says is absolutely binding on everyone in every culture at all times. For example, the Bible says you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal. And that you includes you and me and everyone else. Romans chapter 3 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This all is, includes you, includes me. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These, these, these definitive statements, not I'm a way, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And when he talks about no one comes to the Father, that no one includes you and me and everyone else. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This you, if you confess, this you, that you will be saved, it includes you and me and everyone else. Each of these statements are not only absolute moral truth statements, they are also simply reflections of the entire Bible. It's made of God's truth that's absolute for all time, for all peoples. So the question that we should ask is, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know that we should believe these things as moral statements? And this is where Peter helps us so much. In his second letter here, 2 Peter chapter 1, what we're told here is that Peter teaches us specifically why we should listen exclusively to God in spite of the number of voices that are shouting across the table. And the reason is because God has spoken clearly, truthfully, and definitively in the scriptures. Notice what Peter says, starting in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's so special about the Bible? The first thing Peter teaches us is that the Bible is not a clever myth. It's not a myth. A myth is a widely held yet false belief. And myths happen to dominate Greek and Roman religious systems. Let me give you a few examples. In this day, they attributed sunlight to the chariot of the god Apollo. 
Evil was explained by the goddess Pandora who opened a box. Children were supposedly conceived because the goddess Artemis was pleased. Temples littered the landscape. And perceiving these ideas to be true, when people had a particular problem, they would simply try to appease the appropriate God. Yet they were all myths. In addition to this, the church, the early church, was facing a very specific false teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism simply said or it promised that that you could experience these these superior highs spiritually, that, that you could reach a place of transcendence if you were able to unlock a secret knowledge through the powers of intuition. And yet this also was a myth. It was lacking any reliability, any credence, any viability. But notice what Peter says in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Providence, the Bible is not a myth. The stories in the Bible, they're all based on actual verifiable, historical people and places, times and events. The the natural and the supernatural events in the New Testament and the Old Testament, even the ones that may at first seem fantastical, they're not myths. The life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his predictions, of how he would suffer, his death and burial and resurrection. They're not myths. The explanation of how we are to live our life in response to Jesus dying for our sin and rising from the dead, it's not a myth. The Bible is true through and through. And the question is, well, how do we know? And that's the second thing I want you to see. And that is that the Bible is a carefully preserved testimony From eyewitnesses. Now we looked at this at greater detail two weeks ago, but I want to remind you that both Luke and John, that we looked at before, and now here Peter, each of these writers of the New Testament, they are telling us that what they have seen with their own eyes, what they have touched with their hands, what they have what they have heard with their ears is precisely the content that they wrote in their letters. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him. You see what it says? It says that not only were they with him in his presence, but they heard what he said. They heard what God said. And they also saw with their own eyes the things that they were recounting to us. What he records here in this passage is actually Peter's eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration of Jesus, which happens to be one of the most stunning events in the New Testament that no doubt led many early hearers to wonder if all of Christianity and the gospel was indeed a myth. 
You can read the story in Matthew chapter 17, but let me tell you what it was. One day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was in heaven in all of his glory, he took on an earth suit. He came to the earth as a baby. He grew up as a man. But in Matthew 17, it says that Jesus Christ took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. And there on that mountain, his earthly body that was containing all of his deity and all of his glory was simply that day not able to hide all of that glory. We're told that his face began to shine like the brightness of the sun. And suddenly in that moment, Moses and Elijah, they appear. If you haven't read the Old Testament, these two men were men. But they were very important men in the Old Testament that God used. One of them was the central character that brought the law of God, and the other was the central prophet that told people to look at the law of God. And so you have here on this mountain three human beings, Peter, James, and John. You have two people who have come from heaven and Elijah and Moses, and you have Jesus Christ, who is God and man. The Bible tells us that Jesus allowed these men to see this. And in the remarkable moment that this was, in spite of the fact that it showed his own clumsiness, the Gospels truthfully report that Peter thought this was an opportune time for him to contribute to the discussion. While Peter was speaking, Matthew 17 actually says that God Almighty from heaven interrupted Peter and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And suddenly Moses and Elijah, they both disappear, leaving only Jesus. Well, Peter, James, and John, they all saw this with their eyes. They heard this with their ears. And this is precisely what we have throughout the Old and New Testament. You have people who are witnessing God move in time and space here on the earth, and they're writing what they remembered, what they heard, and what they saw. In the New Testament, these apostles, such as Peter, they witnessed the life of Jesus, his teachings and his miracles, his suffering and his resurrection. And then they wrote what they saw inside accountable communities that contained other eyewitnesses who were able to verify or vouch for their testimony. This is why when the apostle Paul was on trial before Festus, he says to Festus, this has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's all known. It's all verifiable. You can go and talk to other people other than myself who's on trial who saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And so these two we have looked at over the last few weeks. The Bible is not a myth and that the Bible is written by eyewitnesses in communities that were holding each other accountable to the truth. What I want to spend most of our time on is this third point. It's the last point, and that is that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. You see, throughout history, God moved among people. Throughout history, he spoke to people. He helped people. He cared for people. 
He made promises to people. He protected people. And God moved some of these people to write down what they saw and what they heard. This is what we're told in verse 20 and 21. It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's really important for us to distinguish these words, what we mean when we say inspiring, what is inspiring and what is inspired. For example, when you watch a movie and you see a general or some commander and their speech literally mobilizes and ignites the army that was once totally beleaguered and suddenly they have courage and strength and they go out and they win the war. We're looking at something that's inspiring. When we watch a movie, when we see a coach and they're down at halftime and they go into the locker room and suddenly the coach gives a speech and suddenly the team comes out with all kinds of fire and, and they come back and they win. They say, well, that, that halftime speech must have been inspiring. When we observe people who are fighting difficult fights like cancer and disease and, and they do so with optimism and gratitude in their heart, we go, that's just so inspiring. But when we talk about the fact that the Bible is inspired, we're talking about something else. When we talk about the fact that the Bible is inspired, what we mean is that the Holy Spirit of God literally guided, motivated people using their education, their culture, their vocabulary, their personality, and their perspective of the events in order, as it says, to speak from God himself. In fact, if you look at this word carried along, the word carried along, it's a nautical term. It literally refers to, to a boat that is being moved along the water when wind fills its sails. And this is what we find, is that God's spirit was filling the hearts of people and pushing them to write his words. So when we read the Bible, we're literally hearing the voice of God. You probably have seen, or maybe you even own a Bible where Jesus' words are printed in red. What Peter is saying is that everything in the Bible is God's word. Everything in the Bible is God's word to you and to me. And what you find is this, is that the inspired word of God, when we read it and believe it and apply it to our life, it becomes exceptionally inspiring. It inspires obedience and faith and love and mercy and generosity. It's the power of God's spirit working through his words, working through his spirit within our own heart to confirm that these things are true. You see, the Bible is therefore God's authoritative standard on all matters of faith and life. And as such, the Bible is inerrant. What that means is it's unswervingly truthful in all that it teaches. 
We know this because Titus chapter one, verse two says that God cannot lie. Its accuracy is highlighted by so many different things, but let me just show you some of them. First of all, there's internal consistency, which means that there's not multiple messages within the Bible of how we come to how we make our way to heaven. It's also consistent with non-biblical historical sources. Its accuracy is is highlighted by the fact of the number of fulfilled prophecies about Christ, about world events, about kings and kingdoms throughout time. And it's also highlighted by the fact that there has never been a archaeological discovery that has disproved what it says. And furthermore, the Bible is also infallible. It's not just inerrant without error. It's infallible, which means it's unable to mislead us in all that it teaches. And what that means is that we can trust the Bible knowing that it's not going to lead us astray. What that means is that it's not only, it's only true. What it means is that if you actually do place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it says that you will be forgiven of your sin, it doesn't lead you astray, meaning you will be forgiven of your sin. But there are details in the Bible, however, that seem to betray its accuracy, or at least its claims of being accurate. Examples of these include rounded numbers and differing details to the same historical event, unscientific descriptions of reality. It really is important to note that when you open up a Bible, that the Bible is not a scientific reference book. It's written from the perspective of the world as it appears to the human eye. It Sounds like how we talk about the world. When I talk about what I see, I look at various things and I begin to describe what I see, but I don't start talking scientifically about the nerves in my eye, or I don't start talking about the, the lens or the light that's filling my eye. I'm simply telling you what I see. That said, it is absolutely remarkable that what the Bible does reveal, that what the Bible reveals before being found and discovered by science. In other words, long before any of these things were discovered by a scientist, things like the hydrological cycle, the law of entropy, the springs in the ocean, the life is in the blood, it was written in the Bible. And nevertheless, there are apparent inconsistencies. And what I want to do right now is I want to point out two of them in the hope to show you some of the ways and that perhaps that you can think about when you perhaps find other things that appear inconsistent. The first one I want to show you is a very popular one, and it's from King David. One day, King David, foolishly, sinfully, he decided that he wanted to take a census of his army. We're told in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 5, that Joab, his general, gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there was 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. And yet the exact same account in 2 Samuel 24, verse 9 says, Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 
not 1,100,000, but 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So what do we do when we are looking? And we know that we're looking at the exact same story, and yet some of the details differ. The first thing I would encourage you to remember is that ancient histories rarely give exact numbers, even in what is given. If these were identical numbers, there's a very good chance that if they were actually being precise, is that each of these numbers wouldn't end with a zero. That perhaps it was 499,998. They were rounding. They were approximating. But second, even in this passage, clarity is often found in the words that are given. And so just notice, let's just compare these two. First, the army of Israel. In one account, it says there there was 1,100,000 men. In the other, it says that there were 800,000 men. And yet there's one particular word that is found in this account that gives clarity, and it's the word valiant. Valiant doesn't only mean courageous. It means prepared. It means active duty. In other words, there's a real possibility that what one account was saying was the entire army, including reserves, and the other was saying that these were the men ready today to fight. When we look at the second nation of Judah, one of them says 470,000, one of them says 500,000. And yet the difference in these accounts of the army can be explained in that 1 Chronicles 21 verse 6 says that he did not, this is, this is this general, he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering. If you keep reading, it says because he was upset with David. He thought what he was doing was foolish. In other words, he didn't count two of the tribes of Israel and the fighting men. In other words, both can be entirely accurate. Let me show you one more. In the Gospels, we're told that Jesus rose from the dead. And on the morning that he rose from the dead, we're told that a few women went to Jesus' tomb. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, it says, And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 4, the same account, it says that two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So how do we account for the fact that in one account, it says that there was one angel singular. In the other, it says that there was two. Of course, in this account, it says that there was two men, and that's what they looked like. They looked like men, except for the fact that they were in dazzling apparel. They were angels. So how do we account for the difference? Well, first of all, it's important for us to remember that when we're dealing with eyewitness testimony, including our own, is that eyewitnesses can be entirely truthful in what they report and yet report different details. Next Sunday, when everybody's here back at church, if I ask you, everybody take one piece of paper and write one paragraph of what you see in the room right now, there would not be a single paragraph that would be identical in the entire room. It would all be accurate, assuming that we're not lying. It would, we would all see things differently. and We would report what we, what we see. And so what is it that eyewitness testimony 
generally leans toward. And that is that eyewitness testimony always emphasizes details that are important to us, the witness. So when you think about these two accounts, if you read Matthew's account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, what you're going to find is that tremendous time is spent emphasizing the removal of the stone. That when Jesus was put into the grave, there was a stone that was rolled over. And so when they're walking to the tomb that morning, even their own discussion is on how are we going to get in to anoint this body of Jesus? How are we going to get through this, this stone? And so as a result of that, when they go to talk about the angel, they speak only of the angel who moved it. But you notice that Matthew never says, now look, there was only one angel here. They simply talked about the angel that moved the stone. When you look at Luke's account, and if you would read Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Luke spends a lot of time not talking about the stone, but emphasizing Jesus' missing body. The emphasis is, where is Jesus' body? They find these two men who are in dazzling a parable, and they talk to them. And they say, where is Jesus' missing body? In other words, both can be accurate. They saw, and what they did was they recorded on the basis of the things that were emphasized. And what was important to them is their, as an eyewitness. And so what I would encourage you to consider is this. Is that when you consider inconsistencies that you may find within the scriptures, where one account says this number and this account says this number, let me encourage you before you dig in to examine your heart. You see, one person will approach an inconsistency or what looks like an apparent error. And what they'll do is they'll look for reasons to support the Bible. But another person looking at the same inconsistency or apparent error will, will look to refute the Bible's accuracy. This is why I think it's so important for us when we come to the Bible and we see these things that before we do our research is that we ask ourselves a question or two. And that question would be, what do I hope to find and why? You see, when you discern your motive, it's not going to create accuracy in the Bible, but it will make room in your heart and in your mind to allow for it. And so what's so special about the Bible? Well, the Bible is the complete revelation of God to man. It's not a myth that's cleverly devised by man, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, it is not open to amendment, redaction, or improvement. Jesus proclaimed it to be true. Having full confidence that it is true, let me finish this morning with just a few applications. <clears throat> the first thing I would encourage us to consider is let's look at the Bible as truth more certain than wonders. What do I mean by this? Looking at the Bible as truth more certain than wonders, signs and wonders, ecstatic experiences. Why is it more certain? 
Well, after explaining his experience of seeing Jesus' glory on the mountain of transfiguration, verse 19 says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, scripture is more confirming of truth than all signs and wonders. You consider the fact that this same Peter in the same calendar year, after seeing the glory of Jesus Christ totally unmasked in the same year, looked at a little girl and lied about his association with Jesus. Signs and wonders, uh, though they are appealing to us and to our eyes, they do not create the sustaining faith that will be needed during temptation or persecution. This is why Paul wrote, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I mean, providence, an angelic appearance might be absolutely compelling But what the Bible says is it is not as confirming as scripture itself. And this is why Jesus told the story of a man who was in hell, speaking to Abraham, who was in heaven, asking him to send a messenger to the earth to warn this man's family to avert hell by trusting Christ. The end of the story, it says this, if they, meaning your family, do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the Bible, if they do not hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. As human beings, we imagine that there is more persuasive power in bringing someone to faith in Christ in signs and wonders and fulfilled prophecies than the sentences of Scripture. But it's not so. Romans chapter 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He delivers power through the Bible, confirming power through the Bible. Sustaining power through the Bible. Temptation fighting power comes through the Bible. And therefore, the second application, let's read our Bible. If all of this power is is found in this beautiful, glorious revelation of God, inspired by his spirit to us, then we should do just what Peter says to do in verse 19, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, the Bible is a lamp that illuminates the dark places near our feet until Jesus Christ, who we're told is the bright morning star returns and we see him face to face and everything is illuminated. So let me encourage you as you read your Bible. First of all, I encourage you to read your Bible. Read your Bible. And as you read your Bible, one of the most important things you can do 
is to read the Bible and then to write down truth statements. What that means is this, right? Is you read a passage of scripture and then simply ask yourself, what truth or truths is this passage communicating to me within the confines of the words that are given? We don't have to add to the words or take away from the words. What do those words say? Write down those true statements and then let me encourage you to build your life upon those true statements. Make your decisions on the basis of those true statements. Don't argue with them. Don't contend with them. Don't try to improve them. Yield to them. They're absolute true statements for you and for me. That God has promised on the basis of his own good character that he will bring good to us and glory to him as we yield to them. One of those true statements says that we must trust Jesus Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So the third application, let me encourage you to put your trust in Jesus. The Bible points directly to Jesus as the only Savior for our sin. You know, all that guilt and shame that you feel because of the things that you've done in your own life. There is one and only one Savior who can forgive you of that sin and take away not only the, the pain, but also the shame and the guilt that you feel and carry every day because of that sin. Jesus came to the earth, the Bible says. He lived on this earth without sin, the Bible says. And yet he went to a cross after promising that he was going to go and do that. Just as the Bible said, he died for our sin. He was buried in the grave and he rose from the dead and he did it according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to other people after he rose from the dead, confirming that he was alive. They believed in him. And when they believed in him, they were forgiven of their sin. And then they were commissioned. Generation by generation who believe to go and take the good news of the gospel to others who have never heard. So even though the fact is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is a rescuer and his name is Jesus. And if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ on the basis of the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility, you will be forgiven of your sin. You can trust him right now. Right there in your house. You can confess to him right now with your mouth. You simply pray to him. God, I believe. I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he came. He died for my sin after living without sin. I believe he rose from the dead to prove that he was the son of God. And I confess him as Lord of my life. You can pray to him right now. And the Bible says that you will be forgiven. And for those of us who are forgiven, the last application is simple. So let's show the reality of our discipleship by obeying God's word. When I say it's simple, I don't mean it's easy. I mean, it's not complex. It's not confusing. The Bible says to don't do something. Simplicity says we don't. Now, it may be very difficult not to do it. 
The Bible says, do these things. It may be very difficult to do that, but it's not complex to understand what he wants done. Jesus Christ, our Savior, lived his life leaning on the accuracy of the Bible. Each time he was tempted in the wilderness, you remember what he did? He resisted that temptation by quoting his Bible. So those of us who would say, I'm a Christian, but I'm simply not going to give the Bible authority over this particular area of my life. My question is this, how can we claim to follow Jesus and reject his principal pattern of obedience to the Bible? No providence, if the Bible is not our source of truth, then we are following a Jesus of our own imagination. And that's a Jesus that does not exist. And so if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you to read this book, yield to it, believe it, trust it, love it. Share it with others who are in need of the hope of eternal life. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you gave us the Bible. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in the pages of the Bible. We thank you that you've told us who we are. We believe it's the truest thing about us. We thank you that you've taught us how to live in your world. Even when we have sinned against you, what to do in order to make right. To trust in Jesus Christ is such a gift that you've given to us. And I pray for those who are listening, who are considering that right now. Would you incline their hearts to believe? I pray for those who are skeptical of the accuracy of the Bible. God, that you would help them to see that you would melt down that ice of skepticism and help them to believe. And I pray for us as a church family, not only for our own souls, but as we, as we try to pass the truth of your word, as we pass the faith that has been passed to us, to our children, I pray that you would help us to understand why we believe it's true. To be able to communicate that to the next generations, to our students and to our children. And so, God, we ask that you would be gracious to us. That you would bless us and you would make your face to shine upon us. We sing to you now with a full heart. Thank you for speaking to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.